So in our world, if you look at the prayer book, we have a one-year lectionary. It keeps repeating themselves the same lessons. And so I did get permission from Bishop Marsh. I haven't asked Bishop Webb yet if we could use a three-year lectionary. But in the meantime, I thought, I can preach on other things in the lessons. And so I've decided for a while I'm going to preach on people, things, and places, and not limited to that. And I may go, if I see the lessons actually speaking to me for something happening during the week, I may do that. But for today, in my opinion, and I would maybe there's others too, there are two big sinners in the Bible who repented and changed. One of them was King David. King David was born a thousand years before Christ. He was born in, I believe, Bethlehem, and he died in Jerusalem. There's a number of stories about him. One of them is, is how he came to be king, and I'm not going to tell that today. That's for another day. But I am going to tell you what he did that was so bad. He was in his... Uh, well, shall we say his home, his castle. And back then, there were three or more floors. The first one, if you were a, a common person, was the floor where you'd live in during the day, and at night the animals would come in, they put hay on the floor. The second floor was for sleeping, and the third floor was actually a rooftop area. And so, King David is out on his rooftop area, and it also served a purpose for hanging laundry out and a lot of other things. I mean, they made very good use of their space. And he's out there on his top of his, his place, and he's looking down, and he sees this woman, and um, he, he said uh, to his people, who is that woman? And they said, it is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Now Uriah, unlike David, who normally David would go out in the springtime to play war with his soldiers and whatnot, but he didn't go out this year. So he was home while Uriah was out fighting the battles. So he sees Bathsheba and he says to his people, bring her to me. Now she came to him and um, there's no nice easy way of saying this, they slept together. And then she came and let him know that she was with child. And he said, uh, I'm imagining a number of things, like, oh my gosh, would be probably one of them. And what am I going to do? A number of thoughts went through his head. And he says, I must get Uriah back from the front and have him sleep with his wife so he will be unaware that anything happened between us. So he thought, problem solved. Uriah comes back from the front. He has him in for entertaining. He tries to get him drunk. He does to a certain degree. And he says, now you go have a good time with your wife, and we'll see you tomorrow. Uriah didn't. He actually slept outside David's place. The next day, King David tries the same thing again, tries to get him all liquored up to go sleep with his wife. And he says, I cannot do that. While my men are out there in the front fighting the battles, I cannot sleep with my wife. I am paraphrasing, of course, uh, not real liberally, but that's just the way it goes. And so he says, I must go back with my men. I cannot sleep with my wife. And King David, why sure? 
He gives a note to be given to the general out in the front, saying, put Uriah way out in the front. A sentence of death. And David did that, and Uriah died. David got punished for what he did, in that the child that he bore with Bathsheba died. That's another story. But David repented, and we see that in Psalm 51 when Nathan came to him. David said something like, I say it every time I wash my hands ceremoniously before communion, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Every time I say that, every time I hear that, it just reminds me of how valuable that relationship is with Jesus Christ. You know it when you don't have it, when you're sinning. But boy, oh boy, do you know it when you have it. So we, that's how he repented. And then we go on to the second one. You remember Saul. Saul was the pre-Paul, we'll show, shall we say. Saul was a bad person, and he uh, was at the stoning of Stephen. Now, Stephen, in those days after Jesus died, the disciples, the original, well, Judas died, so they had 11, okay? And so they, uh, the disciples were working really hard, but what they felt called to do was to preach the good news, to preach about Jesus, and they found themselves cleaning tables and doing menial tasks. So the disciples got together and said, we need some other disciples, perhaps of a lesser calling, to go and do these menial tasks. So they decided on the number seven. They called seven disciples. One of them, the best perhaps, was Stephen. And Stephen was um, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, it tells us in Acts 6. Stephen got right to work. He was called. And when you're called to do God's work, there's no blind, you're just open to doing whatever you feel that God is calling you to do. And Stephen was preaching and it got the news to the news of the Sanhedrin that he was saying a lot of things that were offensive to them. And so they called him before the Sanhedrin. And he went into a long, most of the chapter six, and I think maybe seven, I'm not sure. He goes in and he, he just is a tirade. You have been bad since the beginning. And it says that they, when they heard this, you can just imagine it, they get angry. And they ground their teeth at him. I wish I could see the, the immense anger they had towards Stephen. Then they, this is Max 7, verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man. Guess who? Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out loud, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. 
Does it remind you what Jesus said on the cross? Forgive them, they know not what they're doing. Here's Stephen being stoned. I know what I would do, and I've said it before. I'd say, God, let's get a list, line them up, and shoot them. But thank God I'm not God. More forgiving. Lord, they don't know what they're doing. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. But Saul, in chapter 9, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So if he found any who belonged to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I bet that would be a dandy little trip, being bound by somebody who hated him. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter into the city, and you will be told what to do next. Now, if you remember this story from Acts, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now, simplifying again, Ananias says, hey, are you sure you want me to help this guy, God? Because this is the guy who's, you know, persecuting you and whatnot. He's a bad person. God, again, I paraphrase, said, yes, help him. Brother Saul, the Lord, who has appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that this is Ananias to, to Saul, that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and took food and was strengthened. And he preached and reached out not only to the Jews, but especially to the Gentiles. He preached that God's word, God's forgiveness, God's love was for all people. Now, as one characteristic he had, he had when he was Saul, and certainly when he had when he was Paul, and that was his fervent. He loved God, and he loved him incorrectly as Saul, and loved him correctly as as Jesus, as he followed Jesus. Saul, Saul was raised in a Jewish family. He was a tent maker by profession, but he was trained to be a Pharisee. One of the people, I think it's Gamelia, was his teacher, one of the big, what we call them, theologians of the day back then. He was a very well-educated person. And in his epistles of which Seven of them are definitely accredited to him more than anybody else in the Bible he wrote. In his epistles, he tends to say kind things, but make no mistake about it. When he was criticizing his audience, he was criticizing them. He started off with grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then right at him. He did have some really nice words. And this is, written, this is one of the Bible passages that's read at most weddings that I've done. And it's from uh, 1 Corinthians 13. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gang and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Hear that? I'll pay for that later. Pray for me. Patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It was not rejoice in the wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So the question is, how are you doing that? Are you patient? Do you put love above everything? I know sometimes in my life, I bet it happens in yours too. You say things you kind of wish you didn't say. You do things you kind of wish you didn't do. Years ago, I said something to somebody, and that person got very upset. And I apologize. But I've made it a policy or whatever, and whatever I do is to try to be as kind as I can with my tongue. And be as patient as I can with others who I strongly disagree with. It's not easy living that life. But that's what God calls us to do. If you get a chance this afternoon, pick up the 1 Corinthians in your Bible. I'm sure you have it laid right out there for speedy consulting, if you will. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning at the first verse. Read the whole chapter. It's wonderful. It's a guide to how God calls us to live. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our offertory piece will be, He would be who would valiant be. And please turn over one more page to 560.